Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Tracked app. Try Tracked for one free year when you use promo code Zibby at checkout. Why would you use Tracked? You can have active screen time you can feel good about. Tracked is empowering kids to discover new interests, think more creatively and independently, and maybe even turn screen time into a healthy, okay, fine, healthier household habit. It includes peer-to-peer learning with classes taught by accomplished teens and influencers for kids ages eight and up, It enables kids to explore new interests through fun, thought-provoking classes designed to teach college-ready skills and allows them to connect with like-minded peers from around the world through clubs and trivia. You can also plant a tree through One Tree Planted, protect the coast through Surfrider, donate a meal through Second Harvest, and other philanthropic initiatives. Check out the Tracked app on the App Store, tracked.app. Jessica Winter is the author of The Fourth Child, a novel. She is also an editor at The New Yorker. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, Book Forum, The Believer, and many other publications. She lives in Flatbush, Brooklyn with her family. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Fourth Child, a novel, your latest book. Thank you for having me, Zibi. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So for listeners who aren't familiar yet with The Fourth Child, could you give a little synopsis and, and also talk about what inspired you to write it. Sure. I would say that the book is a love story about a mother and her two very different daughters, one of whom is her biological daughter and the other is adopted. The mother's name is Jane. She's devoutly Catholic. She falls pregnant in high school and she gets married and she has three kids in quick succession. And as her kids are entering their tween and teen years and becoming more and more independent, she starts to feel this restlessness. This is bringing us up to the early 1990s. And her restlessness drives her toward two pretty fateful decisions. One is that she adopts a child from Romania named Morella, and the other is that she becomes active in a local pro-life organization. The idea for the book came to me about six years ago. I had just had my own, my first baby, and I was thinking a lot at that time about reproductive rights, and I was also thinking a lot about attachment and attachment theory. I was reading a lot of the writings of Donald Winnicott. And in this strange way, these ideas that were kind of bouncing around in my head started expressing themselves through these characters. And I went from there. Wow. You had a lot. You had like full-on excerpts from some of the attachment. I was like, am I supposed to be learning from this attachment parenting? Did I like forget? I don't know. (laughs) What should I be taking away? Oh my gosh. I hope I didn't mess things up. But (laughs) You did not. You did not. I mean, Winnicott Winnicott was just an extraordinary thinker. He, He was a visionary, really. So much of what we understand about children and how we, uh, what we want to foster as parents now, so much of what we get from contemporary parenting experts actually comes from this person who was born in the late 19th century. The idea of validating a child's emotions so that they don't become codependent, that's Winnicott. The good enough mother, the idea of a transitional object, what else? Oh, the sacred importance of play, that all of those ideas come from Winnicott. And he's just, he's such a delightful writer. It's just really fun 
to read his stuff. He has a book called The Piggle that's just this long description of a small child. And But no, you did not screw anything up with you. <laughs> You didn't read Donald Winnicott and you can read him at any age. He's, he's just wonderful. I did read like a bazillion parenting books at the time, which I remember doing jury duty when my twins were, I don't know, not sleeping. Not that they do now. Well, actually one of them does, but I went to jury <laughs> duty with like 10 parenting books on sleep. I, I, it was like, I was like a purity of myself, actually, if I could like look back on that moment. And I, all I did was like Wait. take notes and, you know, of course nothing worked. My daughter still never sleeps and she's 14, but almost 14. Anyway. We are all parodies of ourselves. Right? It's like a joke. It's all like a a joke. Well, I found it so interesting in your book how you described even just the process of Jane's, how she includes religion in so much of her life and sort of the role of religion as it courses through and even like how it sort of ends up with what they think is this like missionary trip. And she comes back, of course, like a child or how her other children had thought of it or how her husband had sort of presented it at the time. And sort of the, the, the way that religion is courses through the book. And I was hoping you could just talk a little more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the book comes from my own thoughts and my own wrestling with Catholicism. I grew up in the Catholic church and I think that I just had a lot to work through about how the church and how the idea of God was really important to me as a kid. And then it kind of left me and I had never really reckoned with that in an essay or in fiction or or anywhere before I wrote this book. And the, I, I think that one of the things, one of the reasons I turned away from the church was what I interpreted to be its focus on suffering. Mm-hmm. I really think the Catholic church, you know, from, from the crosses and the stations of the cross and the, the, the sermons that I heard as a kid and, you know, the idea of reconciliation through confession. I made my first confession when I was seven. Wow. What was I confessing to? Yeah. You know, I, I, think, I think I confessed to something like I wasn't nice enough about sharing my crayons. Like, I remember really freaking out because I couldn't come up with anything to confess to the first time I did confession. And so this idea of, of suffering and penance and guilt that so suffuses the Catholic Church... I think was was a big part of why I just didn't want any part of it anymore. And it was it was nice to finally find a way through fiction to kind of explore these ideas through people who were perhaps more interesting than me <laughs> and had a more interesting story than I did. That that was it was a relief to find that and I, I'm really grateful for it. And so where have you ended up? How do you what's the role of religion in your life now? Not that this is any of my business and feel free not to answer, but it, it doesn't have one. Okay. It doesn't have one. And I wish it did. I really wish it did. And maybe, you know, it's, it's never too late. But, but right now I'm, I'm just coasting through as a, as a free agent. <laughs> and your focus on reproductive rights, both in the book and in a recent New Yorker article and everything, tell me a little more about how you feel about that or how you decided to approach it in fiction. Sure. I mean, I, I've, I've always wanted, I guess similarly to always wanting to write about the Catholic Church, I've always wanted to write about the spring of life, which were these massive anti-abortion demonstrations that happened in my hometown of Buffalo in April of 1992. And it was a really big deal. I was 15, so I was just a hair too young to you know, participate in any way or, or, or really be deeply knowledgeable about it at the time. But it was a big deal for my hometown, and it framed a lot of my thinking about where I grew up, my own adolescence, again, the Catholic Church, because 
the the reason that these anti-abortion protesters targeted Buffalo was because of its large Catholic population and reproductive rights itself. It was a real crystallizing event for me. And for years, I thought, do I want to write an oral history of the spring of life? Do I want to write an essay? Is it a story? And I came to writing fiction very late. I started writing my first novel in my mid-30s. And, and again, as with Catholicism, it, it was just, uh, I don't want to say a joy because these, these issues are so difficult, but it was really bracing and kind of exciting to find a forum, fiction, for thinking through the spring of life in a way that might be surprising or revelatory in a way that a newspaper article or something would not be. Huh. Wait, so tell me about your trajectory. And first of all, I do not think writing a novel in your 30s is very late. I mean, I've talked <laughs> to people who write the novels in their 60s for the first time. So I don't think that's late at all, but just store that away and do with it what you will. How did you get into writing and how did you become like an executive editor at The New Yorker? Like, tell me about your whole writing life and, you know, maybe start with college or wherever it starts. Sure. I mean, if you'd asked me when I was a teenager what I wanted to be, I would have said a doctor writer. A high school teacher gave me the book Down from Troy, the memoir by Richard Seltzer. He was a surgeon. He died a few years ago. And that had a big influence on me. Probably a bad influence because Seltzer had this big, ponderous, kind of sentimental style that I now find kind of unbearable. But his career sort of it sort of provided an accessible role model. And it turned out, as I discovered in college, I just wasn't a good enough student to do the doctor part. (laughs) I've never thought of myself as a particularly creative person. I think I I was attracted to criticism and reporting and journalism and editing because to my eye, in each of those disciplines, the primary material is already there for you, right? Like if you're writing a work of criticism, you have the work of art. If you are reporting, the story is already there and you just have to tell it as truthfully and fairly as possible. If you are an editor, the writer does all the hard work and you just help them you know, make a good piece even better. And so fiction was scary to me because it felt more like a blank page. It felt more purely generative. And so once I did find it, it was just, it was just thrilling to find a new way to write. But backing up, I, I always wanted... I think I was always like a magazine person or I guess a website person, but websites weren't around when I was a kid. I remember when the Barnes and Noble opened up on Transit Road when I was 14, I would just spend hours in the magazine section, like pouring through all the magazines. Like they had zines, like zines were big in the early nineties and they had all these obscure journals. And I was fascinated by this whole world out there of people making these beautiful objects. And I, I didn't understand the production process. I didn't understand how, how did the writer know exactly to write that many words to fit on this page? That's amazing, which, which is obviously totally naive and, and silly, but I just, I was always so intrigued. And so I, I think maybe I just, I just came out of the box kind of factory assembled to make magazines and make websites. And so that's always what I did. I, I worked on newspapers in college, my first job out of college was um, at the Village Voice. And it just kind of went from there pretty organically. And what happened after that? I went, let's see, I went to London for a few years to go to grad school. I came back and I worked at Oh, the Oprah magazine. I ran the front of the book and then I ran the back of the book at Time. And then I went to Slate and then I went to The New Yorker. And I would love to, to 
I, I think that young people just starting out, they want to hear from the old folk that there was some master plan. And if you just map the template onto your own life, you, know, you can get to the magazine you've always most admired in the whole world. And oh my God, I can't believe I work at the New Yorker. But there is, there is no master plan. You, know, you, you do one job and you do the best work that you can and you make connections and friendships and and that leads to something else and something else and something else. But there's no, I, I never had a map. Yeah. Those don't exist. I, I feel like <laughs> the people I knew starting out who were like, I'm going to do this, this, and this, like those things end up not working out. And the people who are like, I'm not sure, but I think I'm going to go this way, end up having these windy roads that take them interesting places. So yeah, I think even the question, like, what do you want to be when you grow up is like, forget it. Like I've like 57 <laughs> jobs. Who knows what, and what do you want to be this week? I just changed my job. Like what, who knows? <laughs> so what is it like, just cause I'm sure people would be interested in knowing it because I'm interested in knowing like, what is it like to be an editor at the New Yorker and have like all this amazing talent and then be able to work with from the writers and then also get to write for them yourself? What, like, what is it like? I mean, it's incredible. The vast majority of the work that I do is on the website. Occasionally I'll do a print piece and I don't, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. And, and I, the, mo- the most amazing part of it, I think, is the young people at The New Yorker because they are just as smart and just as wise and, and their ideas are just as vibrant and exciting as like the old folk. I mean, that, that's the best part of it for me is, is working with the people who are the future of journalism who are so much smarter than I was at that age and probably smarter than I am now. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's what, I mean, especially in the pandemic, you know, just, just working with that kind of talent is, is really helping you know, me get through my days, certainly. And it's just, it's just incredible to be surrounded by people who hold themselves to such high standards and who are so kind and and helpful and and collegial about holding themselves to those kinds of standards you know it's not cutthroat it's it's not you know people trying to outdo each other it's people trying to outdo themselves together and that's a wonderful thing that is a wonderful thing i loved your recent piece by the way i mean i have to find it here on it was called Stealth Kids Movies for the Era of Quarantine. And I know this wasn't so recent. It was a year ago. But I, having lived through all of <laughs> these movies. A very long year ago. A very long year ago. I just wanted to read this because it was so funny. I recently told my five-year-old that she could no longer watch her favorite Adam Sandler trilogy, which she discovered on an international flight when parental inhibitions were low because, as I put it, our Hotel Transylvania subscription ran out. She accepted this response with stoic grace and utter faith in my trustworthiness. Now, though, we are entering our second week of quarantine with many more likely to come. And I suspect that boredom, discomfort, and screen temptation will lower the bar in the manner of, say, an international flight the last 60 days. <laughs> Remember when we thought quarantine would only last 60 days? Yes, if we were young. I mean, I were we ever that young? <laughs> exactly. So what ended up happening? How did, I mean, you list so many funny movies and I have a six-year-old and a seven-year-old and also twins who are older, but I'm like deep into all these shows. So this was like, mm-hmm. you know, music to my ears, this piece. <laughs> did you end up watching like any, what was the update on this after surviving a year of quarantine? They have continued to have forgotten Hotel Trans- Transylvania. Okay. I have not had a Hotel Transylvania request, okay. which That's is good. a relief. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, kids TV and kids movies are just so much better than they were when I was a kid. So the job of, okay, just sit here for an hour while, you know, I clean the kitchen. 
it's just so much easier now to feel kind of good about whatever they're watching. They had a bluey phase. Right now they're into Waffles and Moki, the Michelle Obama puppet show. Oh, we have not seen really into that right right now. Yeah. Waffles and Moki. What else? Yeah. I mean, they have phases where they'll just watch one show over and over and over again. And then one day like a light switch flips. Yeah. And they want to know, and, and sometimes I don't even know how they're learning about this stuff. I mean, the Netflix algorithm is a little bit diabolical because it automatically plays trailers for the next show and they get super interested in the trailers because the tra- trailers are really good. But yeah, I mean, I have, what I've decided is during the week, we have a no screens policy. I instituted this in June. No iPad, no TV, nothing during the week. And I I have mixed feelings about this because it's nice. It's prescriptive. The kids know that they can have a binge on the weekend, but the problem is the kids have a binge on the weekend and they just want to watch TV all weekend. So I don't know. I might fine tune it a little bit, but right right now that's where we are. I have not done as good a job with that. (laughs) We still have screens during the week. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like my kids are now so into YouTube and like playing Roblox and things like that, that I like, I would rather they watch TV like in the old days. (laughs) I'm terrified of YouTube. Yeah. Just absolutely terrified of YouTube. It's really My son does watch Subway, Subway's coming in and out of the station on YouTube. There's this whole community of like subway watchers. Interesting. And the videos are super wholesome. They're just, you know, the commenters are like, good job with the C train today. You know, it's just very, it's almost, it's it's like the most wholesome, like Andy Warhol movie. Wow. (laughs) It's like nothing happens, but he he enjoys watching those. But I I watch him like a hawk Mm -hmm. when he's watching YouTube because I'm just, I'm so afraid of what might pop up. Yeah, it's, it's not good. Yeah. And it's not like, it's not a way for me to like, you know, run off and take a shower or something. Yeah. Cause like I am like hovering over him, which I'm, I'm sure he loves it too. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you know? So I heard about this latest book originally a while ago from Ruman Alon. How did you, how are you guys connected? How did I meet Ruman? I, we did a podcast together years ago. We did an episode of mom and dad are fighting together. And then I think he wrote for me. And our his kids are slightly older than mine. And oh, I remember. I mean, one, one time I ran into him at the playground. We go to the same playground a lot. And it just kind of went from there. But I, I really admired his first book, Rich and Pretty. And I think I wrote a very brief little squib about it when my first book came out. And I, I've enjoyed watching his career. Yeah, it's, it's a real treat to become friends as well. So tell me a little more about your process of writing this book. What was it like? And even your, and your last book as well. But my process for this one was that I really, I started researching it before I even realized I was writing it because I was doing all this reading on attachment theory and because I was doing all this reading on the spring of life. And yeah, one day I looked up and thought, oh, I think this is a book. (laughs) So that, that was nice to kind of back into it it didn't feel quite as high stakes to, to just sort of realize midstream that, that, that it was a book. And my process is pretty haphazard. I loved what Venda Levita said on one of your shows recently about how you, you have to do the work every single day because you never know what's going to happen. Like you have to hold that space and just wait for something to happen. I, I loved that. I loved how it brought this idea of unpredictability and and surprise and mystery to what can feel like real drudgery. Like, you know, it's like getting up at four in the morning and putting in your two hours or whatever it is. What I find works for me is the five hour block. There's something magic about the five hour block. So a lot of Saturdays, I would hand the kids over to a sitter 
and I would lock myself away and I would give myself the five hour block because it's, it's short enough that you can't mess around too much. Like, you know, if you do like steal over to YouTube or if you do start texting a friend, like it's like, I don't know, like this is kind of creeping up on me, but it's long enough that you can really lose yourself in the time. And so, you know, I had years and years of Saturdays, not every Saturday, you know, there's birthday parties and there's life to to be lived, (laughs) but a lot of Saturdays over a lot of years, I did, I did the five hour block and just, just kept pushing the boulder up the hill. Wow. I love that. And then at one point, my friends, Jin and Louis, Jin Dilling and Louis Salatan, they went away and they gave, they had this beautiful cabin upstate and I went there for 10 days and I just locked myself away. Do you know what Ishiguro says about the crash, about how he wrote the remains of the day in 30 days and just, he had no obligations to the outside world. His wife took care of everything. Like he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to talk to anybody. He didn't have to make dinner or like wipe a counter. He just had 30 days to crash a first draft of the remains of the day. And I was trying to do that in 10 days in Jin and Louie's cabin. How did it go? <laughs> it went well. I mean, I, the draft that came out of those 10 days was absolute garbage, but it existed. Mm-hmm. There was a draft. And just getting over that psychological hurdle was just an incredible feeling. Wow. That's amazing. And what are you going to work on next? Do you have another novel in you? I have another novel in me. I don't know when I'm going to write it. I I have the idea for it, but I have not been terribly productive or creative during the pandemic. So once things get back to normal, I'm hoping maybe I'll get my Saturday five-hour block back. But right now I'm I'm kind of idling, I must confess. And I, I'm I, I feel sheepish about saying that out loud, but I also I also want other people to hear somebody saying this so that they feel okay if they're having the same kind of frustration that I am. I hear that over and over and over again. Oh, good. You are not okay. alone in how <laughs> you feel about it. And there is no pressure. I feel bad sometimes asking the question, like I'm putting people on the spot, like you have to have something in the works or ready. And I don't mean it. It's just some people do have stuff. So I, just, I don't know. I just like to know, like, even if it means, you know, my next plan is to like go to the park with my kids. Like, amazing. Great. I don't know. I just like to know what's next. Like what, what's on the- That is the extent of my plans. That's yes. Great. Like, this weekend, we've got a birthday party <laughs> and like, there's a new playground that just opened up in our neighborhood. Like th- those are the extent of my plans. And that's okay. I mean, it's not, it's, it's nice to just, it's prescriptive, um, which I think is a word I, I used earlier in this, in this conversation. It's, it, it's, it's focusing to just tell yourself, I, this part of my life has to go on hold for a little while. And now we're going to go to the Mr. Softy truck together. It's, 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 it's nice. But I, I, I do look forward to the day when it comes back. Definitely. And what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Oh my goodness. I feel bad that I'm repeating myself, but I, I just holding the space, just holding the space, whether it's 45 minutes in the morning or two hours at night or five hours on Saturday, you just have to hold that space for yourself and give that gift to yourself. And it's okay if nothing comes of it. It's okay if you know you write 20 pages one week and a paragraph another, but just hold the space for the, the possibility of what might happen. Love that. I think there's there's like two kinds of writer. I've 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 found this kind of recently. There's two kinds of writers. There, there are the writers who really want to find an audience that they're 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 not pandering to an audience or trying to manufacture something for a certain demographic of people, but they really want to publish something that enters into a conversation, a larger conversation in the world. And there's a second type of writer who you could tell them 
this manuscript that you're working so hard on, it's just going to malinger in a drawer for the rest of your life. And you're not going to get an agent. You're not going to get an editor. This is going nowhere. And they would still do it. They would still do it to the best of their ability for themselves because they have to. And I think in the, I, I think those writers, that second group of writers has it easier <laughs> than the first group because they, they don't want anything other than the work. And so I guess my other piece of advice is try to foster that part of yourself that is saying, this is just for me and the work is its own reward. Love it. I have a really hard time with that. <laughs> I, I do not follow my own advice, but if other people can do it, they should. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Jessica, thank you. Thanks for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. Thanks for this lovely conversation. And I'm going to go back to your article over here to get some more movie tips for the kids when I'm done. (laughs) Thank you, Zuby. This was so much fun. Okay, good. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Tracked App for sponsoring today's episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 